Welcome to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. A little farther into the show, we'll be talking with Carrie Kay, who is a circus artist, a coach, and a rigger with Cirque du Soleil. We'll talk about how he balances being both a performer and an elite theater tech. First, though, we're going to talk about The Body, A Guide for Occupants, a book by Bill Bryson. I love Bill Bryson's writing. I've read several of his books. They're always this kind of folksy, nonfiction, and he's always super engaging. He goes off on tangents, but they are generally just really delightful to read. So this one is about the body. He calls out Oliver Sacks, and in an earlier book review I did about the body, one of my problems was that the neurologist who wrote it wasn't very engaging. And I kept saying, I, I really wish I'd read something like this that was sort of along the same humanist vein as Oliver Sacks wrote about the brain. And Bill Bryson more or less manages to do it. There's excellent deep history, like the little side trips he makes are often about medical history and history in general, and they're usually really, really fun to read. How to make a human and the cost of materials. He's not the first to do this. In fact, one of my favorite authors of all time was Terry Pratchett, and he had a traditional, I believe traditional poem about this which is, what do you need to make a man? Iron enough to make a nail, lime enough to paint a wall, water enough to drown a dog, sulfur enough to stop the fleas, poison enough to kill the cow, potash enough to wash a shirt, gold enough to buy a bean, silver enough to cost a pin, lead enough to ballast a bird, phosphor enough to light the town, strength enough to build a home, Time enough to hold a child, love enough to break a heart. And that's from Winter Smith, and it weaves itself in and out of the novel. So this kind of idea where you just do a breakdown of all the things that are in the body is familiar. And it's something I think one of the Royal Society of, like Royal Society of Chemists or something like that, did some long time ago. But, you know, reading it, I was thinking... They quantify this cost based on materials and labor. If you consider labor to be mining, but not if you consider the mother's real life, actual labor in creating this child in her body and then laboring to birth it. And it doesn't really matter because with all the materials, you can put them all on the table but you cannot make a replica person except the normal way. The only thing that's special about the elements that make you, which you could find in dirt, is that they make you. A lot of really awesome stats. The miracle of human life is not that we're endowed with some frailties, but that we are not swamped with them. And I loved this note. Don't forget your genes aren't even human. Some of them were fish. Lots of them were tiny and furry and lived in burrows. He talks about skin and hair. Really, really interesting data. I want to stop for a second before I say the word data, because 
it's not made like a constantly referenced science book. This really isn't a book for anatomists. It's not a book for people who just want sort of a rundown of the literature. It's meant to be a very engaging introduction to the body. Actually, I think it would be really awesome read for, I think if it had been written in time, I would have assigned it or, or encouraged my kids to read it when they homeschooled because it would, it covers just a lot of stuff in a sort of popular, but also well-researched manner in general. We are so fine-tuned, we can tell if we are pushing a spade into gravel or sand without actually touching what's at the other end of the shovel. That's astonishing to think about. Also, we have no receptors for wet. We can just tell temperature. We can't tell wet or dry. That's That just got me sort of off into just trying to figure that out for a little bit. He does touch on some timely things. For example, the myth of race. Because although your skin has different thicknesses, it's thinnest on your eyelids, it's thickest on your palms and, and your soles of your feet. But skin color is only the very top millimeter. Even there, he talks to an anatomist dissecting a corpse and they peel away the top millimeter of skin and it's translucent. But light skin and light hair and light eyes are a really recent gene expression. And in fact, it's also an old one because we have depigmented and repigmented repeatedly over time since we were fish. Talks about fingerprints, sweat, the skin biome, which we don't really take a lot of time to think about. Now, in recent years, we've talked about the gut biome. He goes on and does that later, but we don't really talk too much about the skin biome and how it is unique to all of us. And essentially, we've just got all of these very microscopic, tiny, additional bits of life on us that as long as they don't do anything out of the ordinary, as long as they don't impact us in any way, we don't ever really acknowledge that they exist. And then he does talk about phantom limb itching. That actually has more to do with the shovel thing because that book that I didn't like so much about the body talked a bit about how your brain maps your body. And if you use a tool for a certain period of time, it will map the tool in as well. That's how tennis players can get so astonishingly good. Their brains have mapped the tool onto their conception of their body. And you need to do that when you are going to wear a prosthetic. You need to have a phantom limb in order to wear a prosthetic. Your brain needs to map the body part back in in order for the prosthetic to work. But this all can go very wrong. And it can go very wrong in the nerve system. There's a woman with phantom itching who, it's a terrible story, but an extraordinary one. It was a medical mystery for a long time. She had had shingles, I believe it was, and she started itching and she couldn't stop. And she ended up itching maybe through, I think through the bone of her skull and was just in terrible distress. And he doesn't talk about what happened to it, but as I recall from that case, I think she retrained, she certainly got some peace, but I think she was able to retrain 
some of her nerve endings and her brain's conception of itself through one of the ways that they sort of have figured out phantom limbs and phantom kinds of conceptions of the body where they'll put like a rubber hand on the other side of a mirror and they start tickling it and you feel it in your hand even though you're quite aware that it is a fake one. I think they did something like that with her. He's got microbial you, that's fantastic, the brain, the head. He really just goes down one by one by one by one. In Equilibrium, he talks about surviving extraordinary accidents and also the horrifying stories in World War II about experimenting on humans. And while, of course, I had been aware of the concentration camp experimentations on human beings by the Nazis, I had not been aware of the pretty horrifying war crimes that the Japanese prisoner of war camps and concentration camps were doing as well. There's a part on the guts, E. coli, foodborne illness. He called that America's secret epidemic. 3,000 people die from it every year. And I was thinking how, first of all, how astonishingly low that number seems now that we've got COVID. But also, I'd be really interested to know if that number spikes because a lot of regular things that people get that the hospitals used to be able to cope with okay. So if you had a foodborne illness, if you had E. coli or salmonella and you went straight to the hospital, they would put you on an IV. They would get you kind of taken care of. You might survive it. But if all the beds are filled with people who didn't vaccinate and now have covid very interesting to know what other illnesses and diseases are going to spike, but also how very fragile and vulnerable we are to foodborne illness. There is no agency in charge of actual food. So like the FDA is responsible for sausage skin, but the Food Safety and Inspection Agency is responsible for the contents of the sausage. Cheese pizza are looked after by one group. Meat pizzas are looked at by another. They're all kind of an, it, it, there's regulation, but then to what extent do they cooperate? To what extent do they share information? We don't know. And one of the people that it was studying foodborne illness pointed out in this little practical note, it's probably not the last thing you ate, but the thing before the last thing you ate. He doesn't really go in order. I'm not sure quite. It's not like skeletal. I think it's just a meander. So he's meandering around the body. Talks about sleep, the need for it, and how incredibly mysterious it is. About gender and sexuality. There are bits that I'll talk about a little bit later that didn't really come up. But I did really like the focus that he put about how women are not included in huge numbers, in most medical studies. It's a very interesting thing. Women are 51% of the population. But because all these fields have been dominated by men for so long, men are considered the default. Women are considered somehow special humans or not normal humans or not regular humans. And there's a lot of worry that a menstrual cycle might screw up the experiments rather than saying, wait, they are just as much default. And if there's a menstrual cycle issue, then that also needs to be accounted for because we prescribe drugs. We were prescribing sleep drugs for a long time that just plain affected women differently. So he does talk about that, which I'm very happy about. Then conception and birth, 
cleaning up babies right after birth can deprive them of protective microorganisms, but giving mothers antibiotics has effects that we have no idea about. And the famous case of, what's his first name, Alexander or something like that, Semmelweis, who figured out that women were dying in childbirth because the doctors weren't washing their hands and how it took years, decades before anybody started saying, yeah, that is what's happening. Tragic story. And and the guy was just basically never believed. And then this fascinating little tidbit, nursing mothers absorb information from the infant's saliva and adjust the milk automatically to provide necessary nutrients for the baby's biome. Like, that is beyond astonishing. That's beyond anything. How come we're not just sitting there? First of all, how come we don't have extraordinary medical leave in the richest country in the world, uh, extraordinary maternity leave? And then why don't we just have like a moment of just complete blown over astonishment at how phenomenally we work? just in general, as human beings, just amazing. He talks about diseases, but of course it's pre-COVID, so you just kind of laugh at a lot of this, like this quote, the fact is we're really no better prepared for a bad outbreak today than we were when the Spanish flu killed tens of millions of people a hundred years ago. The reason we haven't had another experience like that isn't because we've been vigilant, it's because we've been lucky. And then he also talks about vaccinations, and all you can do is just shake your head. But one of the cases he talked about, I wish he, I wish he had covered this a little bit better, is Typhoid Mary. It's especially interesting right now with all these people resisting masks, resisting vaccinations. Typhoid Mary spread typhoid to, I think she killed 32 people ultimately. Because she was a carrier, she did not feel sick. No one really explained the situation to her. She was always treated with punishment which is a real problem. And in his retelling of the Typhoid Mary story, Bryson actually misses one of the main things about it. He talks about her not washing her hands. I mean, maybe she didn't, it's true, but she was a cook and she was a trained cook and she was a well-regarded and well-referenced cook. So I bet she did wash her hands but I bet she also tasted her food because you have to. And a lot of us growing up today didn't have a family tradition where we would get a new spoon to taste food. We simply assume that since we're not sick, we're not passing something on. Typhoid Mary probably was passing everything on through her spit, through tasting the sauce and putting the spoon back to stir it some more. So the perils of detection, that was really interesting. People have this real idea now that, well, if I can get scanned for everything that could go wrong, the big one is always cancer, right? If you could get scanned for every kind of cancer for say $5,000, would you do it? And the answer most people have is, yes, of course, of course, of course. But the problem is you never know when something is found if it's really going to be a problem. A family member of mine had 
a completely benign tumor. We have those. We just do. Our bodies just go a little bit out of whack here and there, and it's not a problem. And in fact, this family member was fine until it started pressing against very important parts of her brain. And now it was a big problem and had to be dealt with. But in other parts, we could end up doing chemotherapy and radiologic therapy. We could end up doing all of these things to address lumps that aren't a problem in order to find the ones that are, meaning we could create problems going after these ones that are harmless. It is not easy. It is very nuanced and nobody, nobody knows the answers to these yet. Deaths from infectious diseases, again, this is so sad to read, dropped to just 3% from 50% in 1900. So people were dying of pneumonia and flu. That was like the highest reason for death in 1900. And just two and a half, three years ago or so, when Bryson wrote this book, those infectious disease rates had dropped to 3%. That isn't the case anymore. Life expectancy drops with geography and race. So even wealthy black women do poorly in things like cervical cancer and also by like subway stop. You can track how life expectancy just drop, 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 drops. So geography, income, and race. And how crazy it is that healthcare in America is so stupid expensive with our numbers, our stats being so very bad. And then he ends the chapter with this interesting fact that, you know, I know medical schools know about this. I know they're thinking about this. Do I think they have responded appropriately? I'm not positive. And that is that doctors who are compassionate and empathetic have better outcomes, no matter what they do or don't do, even with other factors accounted for. Just the act of loving listening from a doctor it will improve your outcomes. I actually think that is a practical tip as well. I've been in this situation before. There was a time when I had to find a new doctor. So I was trying to go around and just make little 15 minute appointments to meet these people before picking them. And someone said to me, I don't know why you're treating this like dating. Like you're not going to marry these people. And I was like, no, but I feel like if I'm really, really sick for some reason, I don't want to have to get on the same page with them. I don't want it to be hard to get on the same page with them. But in fact, it turns out that's what we should all be doing. If you don't have a good listener, an empathetic and compassionate doctor, go find another one. Just keep chunking down the list as much as it's possible because your outcomes, their outcomes will be better. And then some bits at the end that I thought were kind of funny. He points out, and this is quite true, your corpse is still very much alive after you are dead. Because you had a ton of dependents, you had millions of bacteria, and then a bunch more joined them. And that sealed the contents of sealed coffins, the bodies inside sealed coffins, can take between 5 and 50 years to decompose. Yeah, I just, I've never 
felt right about that. Honestly, I feel like we should be giving everything back. There's a great song by one of the Weavers, who was a folk group in the 1960s, about just being put right back into the compost pile. The brain stuff was really great. Several years ago, there was, quite frankly, a, I mean, it was entertaining, but a dumb movie that reinforced the myth that we only use 10% of our brains. I think Morgan Freeman has a whole speech about it. That's a lie. Amy Feldman Barrett addresses this too in How Emotions Are Made. Our brains use all our brains all the time. It's just not a thing. And in fact, interesting parts about this book and the, the brain book, our brains are what make sense of the world to us. So the carrot you eat, the orange is your brain detecting light waves and reflection and saying this is orange. The taste, these are just molecules, scentless, flavorless molecules. Your brain makes you realize that carrot tastes nice. Your brain is what identifies and makes you think that chocolate chip cookie tastes great and pleasurable. In and of itself, the thing itself is completely neutral. That stuff, I know it, I've read it, blows my mind. Antibiotics, three quarters of prescriptions written every year are for conditions that cannot be cured with antibiotics. We have screwed up antibiotics and we are very close to a world where you can die from a paper cut again because of it. And, it, it, you know, this has been known for quite some time. This was a big thing people decried when I had kids that, you know, they always blamed parents. Parents are coming into the pediatrician and demanding antibiotics for the kid. Honestly, if they had given me placebos to give them to my kid, even if I had known they were placebos, if it's not a bacterial infection, it would have worked just the same or better because in fact, the antibiotic is now, it's, it's cultivating antibiotic resistance. It's very, very bad to take extra antibiotics, but it's basically working like a placebo. So for God's sake, just get placebos and give them out to people and tell them this is a placebo, but it'll make you feel better. I love all the parts of this book that talked about unrecognized, amazing scientists. And there are so many of them like Nettie Stevens, who discovered not just the XY chromosome, but what it was for and got no recognition and died not super young, but too young to ever get, you know, any benefit out of her discoveries. Someone else took credit. A lot of stories about that. Although he also doesn't talk about anything more than the XY chromosome. And that surprised me just a little bit because there are loads and loads and loads of variations. We do everything very much. We want simplicity. So we want to say XX is, is one, XY is the other, XX is female, XY is male. Sure, but there are actually tons of variations on a theme. There's there's the obvious intersex but and, and hermaphroditic. But in fact, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of others that are just Variations on a theme. People are all over the map. And so it's not quite so cut and dried gender and sex. He doesn't really talk about any of that. 
he does use the phrase like areas of the brain quote where things are located even as he also covers the incredible plasticity of the brain so that's kind of a problem because this concept we the brain is the only organ that tells stories about itself and one of the stories the brain tells is that everything has a location that comes from all these times when someone has been through some kind of brain trauma that debilitated a part of the brain but in fact brains are incredibly plastic we don't know what where the tipping point is for our facility to now not be possible or for someone to actually learn a workaround using other parts of their brain so the idea of where things are located is kind of out of date and pretty unhelpful because of the plasticity. I think one thing that really dinged the book down a little for me is, my God, the author is fat phobic. And especially having talked a bit about women being underrepresented in medical experiments and, and pharmacological experiments. First of all, nobody knows really about weight and what it means and what it does. So a lot of these broad statements about what it does and what it is and how it's bad aren't actually able to be borne out by science, but it can be an indication, and it is an indication of real fat phobia. There are millions of stories, particularly for women, going into the doctor with, for example, a, a appendix that's about to burst and being told, lose some weight. There are stories of women going in for literally anything and being told, lose some weight, as if losing weight is, in fact, the medical problem, and it's not. He's very happy to say very dismissive and unfortunate things about being overweight, as if it is the fault of the people who are overweight. It's not kind. It's not accurate. The idea of things like the Mediterranean diet and things like that, sure, great. Making all these assumptions that anyone who is overweight or even obese is stuffing their face full of pizza or eating at McDonald's all the time, none of that is true. Because if I eat the same food for a year in the EU that I eat in the USA, and my weight fluctuates by a significant amount, that is not me at that point. This comes down to that same kind of thing about blaming people for, say, recycling. You didn't recycle your cans when, in fact, massive global climate disaster is due to big corporations. It's not due to individuals remembering or failing to recycle their lima bean cans. These things are systemic. And we know this because there's countries that will not allow imports of a lot of our food. But we have to eat it. We are doing something very concerning and a kind of human experimentation in here. Anyway, so I didn't love that. I didn't love his decision to go after people who I think everybody's trying their best 
if it's easy to get good food, if it is good food, if you know how to prepare that good food, people will eat the good food. In fact, there's some experiments he talks about in here, how just marketing food differently is better. We also in this country have detached ourselves from food ways, from like traditional ways of eating and preparing food that in other countries isn't the case, right? You, you're in Italy, you go back far and far hundreds of years with this sort of type of cuisine, type of food preparation. It's got some consistency. In this country, we've just got everybody. It's a mishmash and a lot of our food is industrial, even if we're not eating at KFC every night. So I will say too, it's pretty enlightening. And this is to Bryson's credit. He talks about past science mistakes, present faith in science and future mistrust. And that feels a bit like a Ouija board for anti-vaxxers. There is a lot of mess in medical history that maybe isn't properly owned up to, that maybe has been going on for too long, that certainly can be exploited by anyone trying to make a quick buck by, because of the certainty, for example, lobotomies, the certainty that that was a medical treatment when in fact it was just some guy with an ice pick doing enormous damage to human beings. I don't think we reckon sometimes as a culture with the damage that that did and the damage that it does reputationally to science, the damage that it does reputationally to scientists and to doctors. So those are my sort of caveats on the book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson. It really is delightful to read. I really did enjoy going through it and Bill Bryson's just such a delight in general. A couple quibbles, but good book. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing creativity, community, and career. Next up, a conversation with Carrie Kay about how he balances his unusual work with creative performance. With me today is circus performer and rigger, Carrie Kay. Thank you for being on the show today, Carrie. Thanks for having me, Janet. So we always talk about career and community and creativity. And I have to say, somebody who's involved in circus and doing rigging for other circus performers, yeah, you got that covered. So why don't you talk a little bit about your journey to where you are now? Um. Okay, so... Um, I guess let's start with high school. I was doing marching band and that was kind of my first real big performance related thing. And I played sousaphone for three years and I I loved it. I loved being out on the field and memorizing the music and doing the group, the group performance, you know, you had to all be synchronized for those 12 minutes while you're on the field playing the music and marching around to make these shapes. Is sousaphone and, the thing that's like bigger than a tuba? Yeah, I mean they're uh, they probably weigh about the same, but it's it's definitely that different shape. So it <laughs> it it wraps around your body like you kind of are inside it, and the bell comes over your left shoulder. Whereas the tuba, you are you're either carrying it 
like an old boom box on your shoulder or you're holding it in front of you. So it's just easier to march with a sousaphone. It's an but, impressive uh, instrument to decide to do yeah, in high school. <laughs> yeah, I, I was uh, much shorter and smaller back then. So it was kind of funny, but uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I, I, I really enjoyed it. So that's kind of my first big uh, experience with the arts, mm. I guess. And mm-hmm. And while I was in high school, I was also going to a technical school for three hours of the day my junior and senior year and learning computer repair and uh, networking skills. And and I decided I wanted to do that. So I moved to college. Uh, When I went to college, I moved to Vermont up in Burlington. I went to Champlain College and I dual majored Um. in computer networking and information security. And while I was there, um, I got into fire spinning and fire breathing and um, eating fire and that sort of thing. And Ah. uh, at first it was mostly just a fun hobby, but it it consumed all of my free time when I wasn't doing my classwork or ignoring my classwork (laughs) or or working. I, I was pretty much always like spinning toy or teaching myself to juggle or was doing that, something. Like was that college-based? Was that like a club at college or a community thing? What was that? Um, no, some it was just some friends I had. I saw them spinning poi one day, and it looked like fun. And so I asked them to show me a couple of things, and I really liked it. So I went online, and I bought bought my first set of poi, and I just carried them with me everywhere. They could mm. fit in my backpack. You know, they didn't take up a lot of space. So anytime I, I had more than, like, 30 seconds of free time, I just, I got my poi out and I was spinning and I was just constantly doing what this, uh, the overall like generic term for it is object manipulation. So I had something in my hand, if it was a plate or a book or whatever, I started figuring out ways to move it unconventionally and whether that was like spinning it on my fingers or balancing it in weird ways or tossing it around. Like I just was always fidgeting and playing with the objects in my hand. Mm. And, and that really kind of became a huge part of my personality. I started to perform mostly just for my friends at house parties. I, I got my college to allow me to do shows on the college campus, do fire shows. Oh in wow! The middle of the campus, which kind of still <laughs> shocks me that they let me do that. Yeah. And uh, so you know, there we would get crowds of twenty to fifty people showing up to watch me and a couple of my friends spin fire in the middle of my college campus up <laughs> in Burlington, Vermont. And from there, people started asking me to come to like, hey this restaurant I work at is having some event and they want somebody to come perform. Are you interested? Sure. And, you know, I didn't really have any polish at that point. So I was, I wasn't getting paid much, but I would have just been happy to be there anyway. So the fact that I also got $50 and like a meal was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And over time I started to learn more and talk to other performers and uh, go to these kind of, regional fire spinning retreats where there's 
classes during the day um, that volunteers are, are teaching you how to do different skills and techniques. Um, and at night, there's open fire spinning on the field. As long as you have somebody to act as your, your safety person, you can go out there and, and spin fire and have a good time. Mm. And so I went to those a couple of times. And it was there that I really started to think that, oh, I can actually make a living off of this. Mm. And you can, you know, improve, improve the quality of your show. You get insurance. And, you know, I started learning more about the business side of things and how to market myself. Did they cover and, that? Did they cover that at these gatherings? Or is this just something you started to get interested in on your own? No, they, they had uh, classes where they would say, here's how to market yourself. Cool. And here's, if you want to be a professional performer, here's what you need to know and how to talk to the local fire marshal and get approval for your show, how mm. to, what kind of insurance that you'll need, what information do you need to give the clients who are looking to book you, how much should you charge, safety concerns, equipment, all this kind of stuff. So it's a really wonderful resource to go to these retreats and get to learn from people who had already done all this mm. kind of legwork and making fire performance a, a legitimate thing and not just a, something that, you know, hippies are doing. <laughs> um, and like, why, why, why should somebody pay me to do this? Okay, well, I've put time into making a character and I have a costume and I have insurance and I can guarantee safety. I can guarantee the enjoyment of the audience, all these things. That's why you should pay me instead of just getting your, you know, your cousin's friend who maybe does this as well. Right. So I got to start learning all that and I started implementing a lot of those things. Like I, every time I showed up to a gig, I, I had a t-shirt that had my logo on it and my name on it. And I had uh, two people that I was paying to be there to help me, one to act as my fire safety and one who was my like videographer or photographer friend. Mm. And they both had shirts with my name on it. And mm. so when you show up to a, an event and you have a crew of people, it immediately makes people, the people who hired you feel better about hiring you. They're like, oh, this guy is paying other people to come and help him do this thing. So he's legit. Like, so I think with the fire performance in particular, there's always that worry of like, did I, did I do the right thing hiring this guy? Like, is he going to do a good job? Is he going to be safe? And right. um, when you show up with a, a crew and $10,000 of camera equipment and people wearing your name on their shirt, it immediately puts those fears to rest. Right. And that's, you, word of mouth gets around and at that point you're you've really become like when the dj comes like do they just come with their own ipod or do they come with like a car full of amps and stuff like ah this one's real right yeah right right so yeah that's kind of where i got my start into circus was in college with watching my friends spin poi and i thought it looked fun and so then i i learned how and i put together a show and i ended up having this 15 to 20 minute long show that I did at weddings and corporate events and state fairs, things mm. like that. And I did that on the side while I was going to college and working in 
IT. Um, <laughs> See, this is, this is what I love. And actually, this is why I got to tell you, this is so perfect for how this show was conceived is how many times I have met IT people and I haven't stopped to say, what's the weird thing you do that nobody knows about on your weekends? <laughs> right? How amazing is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, everyone's, everyone's got their weird thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's brilliant. So yeah, I was I was working for this credit union. It's my first job. I, I actually started that before I finished college. It's my January of my senior year. So I got that job and I was working 35 hours a week doing that P job as a, a junior network administrator for a credit union in central Vermont. And then finishing up my last four courses of my senior year of college and uh, doing these fire shows on the side and and about a year and a quarter into working at that job I I left and I got a, a job at a dot-com startup in Burlington hmm. and I was there for a year and a half before I lost my job hmm. and at that time I I was single my lease had just switched to month to month because I had been there for a year and and then I find myself without a job and I knew that there was this circus school in southern Vermont um, in Brattleboro and that they had a professional training program because the year before I had met a couple people who were in the program and so I was looking online and um, I see that to go there people you know start preparing and like December or January of the year before and auditions are in February or whenever they were and and that the program started in September and so when I lost my job it was on a on a Tuesday and (laughs) the the professional program was starting in two weeks and they only accepted 18 people and so I thought okay well I'm not getting that (laughs) but I had to put in my email address to get the full like brochure about um, all the details of the program. And so I, I heard from one of the program directors within a couple of hours of me looking on the website and going, okay, well, that's not going to work. I guess I'll just move to Oregon because that was a move that I had been wanting to do anyway. Mm. And I'll just keep doing IT and, you know, go out West. Mm. And so then I hear from the program director that there was still a spot open and the program and if I was interested to give her a call and I thought okay well that's that's interesting so I gave her a call we talked for like 45 minutes and I decided after talking to my parents and a few friends that yeah I'm going to apply for this program and see if I can go do this for one or two years and so I figure I'm I was 24 at the time when I I started and so I was young, and if I was going to do it, that was the time. And right. right. I could always go back to IT in two years or whatever if it's not working. And so I, by that Friday, so I, I lost my job on Tuesday, and Friday I had gotten my video and audition materials together, and I sent it in, and then the hurricane, what, <laughs> Hurricane Sandy hit oh, and right. <laughs> flooded downtown Brattleboro. Oh, Irene. Uh, Irene, that's it. Irene. And Oh, that was that year. That was that year. And then 2011. And 
then Monday, I heard back from the school and they were offering me a spot in their program. And so uh, then that following Friday, so a week and a half after I lost my job, I went down and I found a place to live. And then two weeks after I lost my job, I was starting circus school full time and I had drained my savings to uh, go pay, pay the down payments and got a job at Domino's Pizza and I got another job at a bagel shop. And after a month, I quit the Domino's Pizza and I stayed at the bagel shop and I worked there to pay my rent and such. And I was very fortunate that my mom was able and willing to pay the remainder of the tuition for my circus school. Hmm. That's neat. Yes, I was very fortunate. And so, yeah, I was training there full time. And, you know, that's, that's how I got my start into it. So you got all your video and, and all that stuff. That was the juggling and the poi that got you there? Yep. And I, I've been doing acro yoga with some people um, in Burlington for about a year at that point. So I had mm. some basic partner acrobatics and I was really interested in learning more of that. So I had, I had also taught myself how to juggle clubs before I learned how to juggle balls, interestingly enough. Mm. And so I had some really basic three club juggling. I had a rollabola. I did some fire stuff and I did some basic acro yoga and they let me in based on that. Wow. Wow. And then, and where did your love of rigging come from? Like where, how did you end up doing that? So while I was in college, I was in ROTC for three years and my, I was planning on going into the army and that was, that's a, pretty common thing in my family, it was a pretty big military family. And they were, um, I had a three-year ROTC scholarship and you'll notice I didn't go into the army, so <laughs> I'm paying that money back, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. I'm totally okay with that. But before I got out of ROTC, I had done three years and uh, between my first and second year, I went to airborne school and learned how to jump out of planes for the army. And then between my sophomore and junior year, I went to mountain warfare school in central Vermont for two weeks. And that is a course that focuses on land navigation in a mountainous terrain and how do you rock climb and belay somebody? How do you rappel down a cliff? How do you set anchor points for that? How do you get across a crevasse when you only have access to one side? And same with the river. If you have somebody who's injured and you need to uh, get them out of there, how do you tie a rope litter and carry them out? So it was all mountaineering rope systems and land navigation for mm-hmm. two weeks. And that's where I started learning about knots and, and rigging and such. And the course was very hard and I think they had pity on me and let me pass <laughs> I, I don't I don't think I should have passed to be honest it, it was it was really hard and the the rope systems got quite complicated but I, I guess I knew enough of them that they they let me go but uh, that was where I first started learning about rigging was uh, that summer 2007 in the mountain warfare school wow. and so at the end of my first year of circus school I was looking for a summer job and uh, Danny Frank 
who was the head coach at Smirkus, Circus Smirkus mm. Camp at the time. He was visiting NECA, the New England Center for Circus Arts, where I was in the program. And he was conducting interviews for people to coach at camp. So I actually was trying to get a coaching job. Mm. And as I was talking to Danny and telling him my background in IT and ROTC and how I had gone to Mountain Warfare School, he looks at me and goes, you would make a great assistant rigger. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so Danny hired me to be the assistant rigger for Smirkus Camp in 2012. And that was my first rigging job. And so I, that's how I got my start in rigging. That is a that is a neat background for that position rather than someone who's been on the ropes before and now wants to rig. Someone who comes from what's already a safety and rescue background is a like <laughs> it's a huge asset for that job. Yeah. Well, and the and the whole problem solving too, like there there's a lot of crossover in the mindset that you need to have to be a good IT technician or a good rigor or a good coach because it's all problem solving you look at okay i need to hang this thing here so that that performer can do their act and that needs to not come out of the air until i bring it down on purpose Mm. and so that's my problem how do i solve it there's a bunch of ways to solve it depending on the situation this person's trying to learn how to do a cartwheel okay well they can do these five things that are part of the cartwheel, but they can't do these two. So I need to figure out a way to get their bodies to do these two things in addition to the five things they can already do Mm. so that they can then do the cartwheel. You know, I need to keep these people from being able to access these files and I need these other Mm. people over here to access those files. So Mm. how do I do that? There's a problem with the computer system. How do I fix it? It's all looking at the problem, identifying it and narrowing it down and testing out solutions. And then uh, you finally come up with the one that works and you move on. So, well, well, right. Because you went on, you went on after circus school to run a school of your own. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that was not, not necessarily a planned, planned thing, but it, yeah, I did do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For several years, I remember. And then and where you are now is also extremely cool. Yeah, I just, just moved down to Orlando and I'm working for Cirque du Soleil for the second time. Um, I was previously on tour with Ovo as one of the acrobatic riggers. So that means I was dealing with the show equipment and I had cues in the show where I have to let lines in or pull them out and check harnesses and make sure performers are going to be safe. and we set up the equipment and tear it down every week mm. and maintain the system. That was a touring show. And then this show that I just joined a little over two weeks ago is a resident show. So it means it's stationary. It doesn't move. It's similar to the ones in Las Vegas. It has its own dedicated theater. Mm. Uh, so it's not in a tent. And it's a theater specifically built for this show. And it was, it's, at Disney Springs, which is part of Walt Disney World here in Orlando. Hmm. And I am, uh, yeah, one of the riggers here on this show. That's very cool. And now, working with Cirque du Soleil, are you able to get time on the equipment yourself to play, to create? 
when I was on tour, I, I tried to do that, but the, the rules for non-artists using the equipment were, were pretty strict mm. due to insurance and all this. Like they, they really just want you to do the job that you were hired to do. And they're not really interested in providing you a space to learn other things. Like mm. if you're a rigger, they don't really care if you learn how to do some acrobatic thing like mm. that's that's not why you're there or why they're paying you so I could use the, the weights to to exercise and I, I did that frequently and if I wanted to train handstands I could mm. but if I wanted to do any aerial thing like use the straps for conditioning I needed to have a coach with me there the whole time I'm training I needed to have one of the physiotherapists in the building and I needed to have an artistic staff member, like a stage manager or somebody in the building. Oh, wow. So that's three people who needed to be there every time I was training, which is kind of an unreasonable thing for me to ask other people to do. Yeah. On a touring show. I was just going to say on the move. Or, you know, we're moving regularly and the hours are already long. So in addition to that, I wasn't able to go more than two meters in the air, and I had to have a, a crash mat at all times. So, like, if you can't go more than two meters in the air, like, my, you know, when I'm standing on the ground, my hands are higher than two meters. So, <laughs> yeah. if you have a crash mat, now you're you're barely able to do pull-ups or leg lifts. So, <laughs> the the requirements were not worth it for for me mm. to try and train any of the the acrobatic things so I just stick stuck with lifting weights and stretching and and that sort of thing while I was on OVO and since I'm here in Orlando I'm, I'm still very new the show is under creation we've got a lot of strict COVID protocols in place oh, right and so I haven't even bothered to ask if I could use any of the show equipment and Honestly, I'm not really interested in it at this point. Mm. Um, I don't really do acrobatic stuff that much anymore. I've kind of shifted to being a juggler and working on balance skills, like balancing things on my face. And um, so I don't need to use the equipment for that. And I'm I'm in a temporary housing spot right now. But once I, I have a lease signed and I move in on September 1st, uh, I'll have all my weights with me again and be able to set up my home gym. And that is, honestly, my home gym is more comprehensive than the weight set that they have at <laughs> the theater. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, they've got enough for somebody, one to two people to work out at a time and to do their like physio and show related things. But I, I think most of the performers will probably have their own gym membership somewhere else or yeah. something. So well, how how different is it to be in a permanent place with Cirque du Soleil than the tri- than the pack it up and move it on? Um it's it's really different and right now it's it's a we're in the middle of creation. So my schedule is changing every day and uh there's a lot of things that are moving and so it hasn't really settled into kind of a consistent routine yet. So I'm still getting a feel for what the differences are. The work life separation is 
definitely better on a resident show versus tour. Mm. When when you're on tour, you're with a hundred other people all the time. You, mm. you know, we on the arena show, you move to a new city every week. You, know, you stay in the same hotels. You're riding the company provided bus to work. You're on the company provided bus to the next city or <laughs> train or plane, whatever it may be for that week. And you're there in the theater for 50 to 70 hours with these hundred people. So you're, you're always around them and, and that's good and bad. You know, you get to be very close with the people you're on tour with and, and other times you're, Oh man, I, I need to see somebody different than <laughs> somebody else. And, but here on the resident show, like, like I said, I only started two weeks ago, so I'm not even the full technical team and the full artistic team isn't even here yet. There's still some departments that haven't started because we're, we're still that early in creation. Right. So, so I haven't met everyone. I don't know what the normal routine is, but the nice thing is about rigging, it, it's kind of a boon and a curse. I can't take my work home with me. It's not possible. I have to be there to do the work. Yeah. So that's great because when I go home, I am fully disconnected from work and I don't, I don't worry about it until I go in next. Right. I'd like to thank Carrie for being here today with me. Tune in next week for the second half of our conversation. To find out more of his work and past episodes, go to our website, working9to thrive.com with the number nine, and follow us on social media. <laughs>